Welcome to Good Chris Elfian Talks. I'm Levi. And I'm Chris. And I'm Brian. Thank you for joining us this week. On this podcast, we select one talk a week to help us get the Bible in our daily news feed. We post a new episode at the start of each week with a short intro beforehand to kind of set the stage for the talk you're about to listen to. And now, let's talk more about this week's talk. Welcome to the Good Chris at Elfian Talks podcast. This is Brother Brian. This week's episode is a bit of a double feature, just trying to capitalize on the timing of some new classes being uploaded. So let me explain. This week's feature talk is an exhortation that was given by Brother Jason Robinson at the Midwest Bible School this past summer. The title of his exhortation was In the Hebrew. And it was a separate topic than his main theme for the week, which was the Tales of the Giants. Now, this was a fantastic series that both myself and Brother Michael Livermore heard live. And when Brother Mike, who was gracious enough to be one of our guest hosts over the summer, had one of these classes picked out, I wasn't surprised at all. But... For the sake of giving props where I think they're due, the feature talk from a month ago, The Giant and the Boy, I think is not even the highlight or even the second highlight of the whole series. So now that the classes have been finally uploaded, uh, we can make them all available on the GCT Extended Podcast. But I just wanted to say, for disclosure, that I think you're missing out if you don't make the time to go through all six because they were just loaded with little gems and great practical advice. Brother Jason had an interactive pamphlet that he had the audience working through as the week went on. And I think we'll reach out to him and we'll see if that can be made available um, online for like a, in a PDF or something um, for any listeners who perhaps may also want to follow along and get the full experience as they listen. I say all that because in context, this exhortation was actually the last thing we heard for the week, and it could easily have been dwarfed and forgotten compared to the Tales of the Giants that we had just been listening to that had been so attention-grabbing all week, but this exhortation stuck with me even more for just being a great Bible marking opportunity based on a very peculiar phrase that stands out in the Gospel of John. An example of it comes from uh, John chapter 19 in both, both verses 13 and verses 17. So for example, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought forth Jesus and they sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, comma, but in the Hebrew, Gabatha. And then verse 17, and he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, comma, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. So Brother Jason's breakdown of who John was targeting when he added that clarification 
and what he was trying to draw our attention back to is just a really cool Old Testament connection that made for some really good Bible marking and is an exhortation that I won't forget anytime soon. So, as always, we hope this double feature, perhaps, <laughs> strengthens your faith and brightens your day. Brother Jason Robinson, in the Hebrew. Thanks again, Brother Paul. And good evening, brothers and sisters. I do, of course, bring with me the love and the greetings of your brothers and sisters in the Thousand Oaks Ecclesia in Southern California, uh, a few of whom have enjoyed quite a spectacular week with you all here at Midwest Bible School. You know, as we do our readings sometimes, we go through the different Gospels, and uh, we, we hit them each basically twice per year. And sometimes we may struggle actually with the timing, um, with the order, with the harmony of the events laid out for us in scriptures. Sometimes we'll sit and we'll try to, with a determined attitude, figure out where each story fits and pieces together. And other times it just seems impossible. But these gospels are too different to find any perfect unity in them. But it's this balance and it's the imbalance that makes these differences in the gospel keyholes into elaborate themes that add the depth and the color of each of the Gospels. For our mind's preparation for these emblems this evening, we're going to look together through one of these keyholes found uniquely in the Gospel of John, and a little bit more broadly, actually, in John's writings altogether. This little phrase, although unique out of the nearly 40 authors throughout all of Scripture, unique only to John, gives us a tremendous exhortation as to Christ's purpose in life and, of course, ultimately in his death. This small but almost unnoticeable theme would have angered the perceptive readers of John's gospel. But for us, it's just another gem buried in the scriptures. It requires us to do a little digging to get it out, a little polish, to shine it up, but to, of course, ultimately admire to be the work of our Heavenly Father. And it's this little phrase that occurs only five times in Scripture, all in John's writings. Two of them were read for us today in John chapter 19. One of them occurs earlier in John, in John chapter 5. And the other two occur in his book of Revelation. The phrase is, in the Hebrew, or in the Hebrew tongue, followed by a Hebrew word. John is the only one to announce that he will be using a Hebrew word to add another layer for his explanation. He uses the words Bethesda, Gabatha, Golgotha, Abaddon, and Armageddon. This evening, we're going to explore just the two that occur for us in John chapter 19. If you haven't already turned there, please turn with me to John chapter 19. You know, in John, various brethren have brought to our attention key words that really frame this gospel, key words that define the direction, the author's mindset, the divine message contained therein. But there is one word which stands out in the context of the book, which God wanted John's message to portray so clearly that it couldn't be missed. It's the word the Jews. 
it refers not to the general race of the Israelites as a whole, but rather to that certain group of those cunning and jealous rulers in the temple service. The chief priests, or as the Greek word we know them by, the Sanhedrin. To see this in action, I'll read for you from the first chapter, the first time that John uses this word in John 1, verse 19. It says, and this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? And it says that the Jews sent priests from Jerusalem. These were priests based in Jerusalem, and they came to this new prophet to question his authority, to question this newfound fame that he was getting. Now, the beginning of the verse says, this is, this is the record of John. God, through John, wants us to pay attention to this group of Jewish priests known as the Sanhedrin for his entire book. Pay attention to them as you read this book. Now, the Sanhedrin was a group of the 70 elders of the priests who had noticed that their power, and others had noticed that their power had grown far beyond what God ever intended their power to grow to in the law. Now, to further cement John's message in our mind and to restate what many brethren have put forward many times before, while Matthew uses the word the Jew five times, Mark seven times, Luke also five times, John uses it 70. It's not coincidence, one for every member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. So with this context, we look at John chapter 19. Pilate is struggling to find a reason to follow the Jewish cries to kill this Jesus. He almost seems to barter with the Jews, but he gets overwhelmed by their shouting and he comes in before Christ and he just wants Christ to prove his innocence. Pilate is growing more and more cowardly, more and more afraid, and he finally makes up his mind to just release Christ and to be done with the whole situation. And so we come to John 19, verse 12. And from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. If I can get him off my hands, this will be done. But the Jews cried out saying, if thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement. But in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And so for our exhortation, we get our first mention of this point that John makes. Well, it's called this, but those Hebrews, the Hebrews call it that. Now, before John comments in the Hebrew word, he says that it's called the pavement. John, by using just this little word, so specially in his gospel, is trying to bring our minds to Christ's ultimate purpose, the purpose of our exhortation, the purpose we find ourselves here this evening, but also to simultaneously shine a spotlight on how easy it is to miss something that can be right in front of us. John is using this word for one good reason, the pavement. 
He wants our minds to scan the law. Well, the law, that's epitome, the basis, the foundation of the Sanhedrin doctrine. So we'll do just what John wants. We'll follow along with him. If you would, come with me to Exodus chapter 24, because he uses the word the pavement for a very interesting reason. And before we look at the translation into Hebrew, Gabbatha, it's important to say, well, why does he use both? Why is John unique in saying it's this, but it's also in Hebrew, that? Exodus 24 and verse 10. Nine for context, then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. It says in verse 10, they saw the God of Israel and under his feet, as it were, paved work. How does that relate? Look at verses seven and eight. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of all the people. And they said, all that Yahweh hath said, will we do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which Yahweh hath made with you concerning all these words. So in verses seven and eight, the people all heard the law and they all agreed that they would obey it. This was a vision of Israel to rise up early, make a covenant by sacrifice and shedding of blood. And to finalize this agreement, Moses would sprinkle the blood on the people. Only moments after Pilate brings in Christ into the pavement, the 70 elders of the Sanhedrin would cry, His blood be on us. Just as in the pavement where Moses would sprinkle the blood of the covenant. When they all agreed, they would follow it and obey it in the audience of the 70 elders of Israel. But Matthew 27 says that the people cried out, His blood be upon us and upon our children. The Jews did not realize the wonder in their words which they chose that day. As the man they beheld was the vision and the manifestation of the God of Israel, whose feet were on the pavement. But if that wasn't enough proof of John's intentions of why he uses the pavement, Exodus tells us who was there witnessing with their own eyes the manifestation of God. It was those 70 elders by whom the Sanhedrin was based upon. Brothers and sisters, this was the pavement. But in the Hebrew, Gabbatha, and any Jewish reader's ears would instantly perk up when they heard that their sacred tongue had been mentioned. Gabbatha? What does Gabbatha mean? Well, it means elevated or a platform. It's widely accepted today that it was the place called the Room of Gazeth which is really spelled the same exact way in Hebrew. It's known for its square, smooth tiles. And it was a place where the Sanhedrin would sit in the temple where they would judge the people. And it's still visible today. And you can still see the ancient scratch marks made by the Romans of the time. Now, while this word, gabatha, does not actually occur directly in the Old Testament, the Septuagint here is of fantastic help. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 
Second Chronicles chapter 7. The same word used for the pavement in John's gospel is also used in the Septuagint's account of Second Chronicles 7. We again see the presence of Yahweh above the people, as in Exodus 24. We again see the consecration of a dwelling place for Yahweh, as in Exodus 24, a place where people could come and be taught that he is good, his mercy endures forever. But it was upon the pavement in Chronicles, as we read verses 1 through 3. Now, when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of Yahweh filled the house. And the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord, because the glory of Yahweh had filled Yahweh's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of Yahweh upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshiped and praised Yahweh, saying, for he is good and for his mercy endureth forever. It was upon the pavement in Chronicles that this entire congregation joined together, not to crucify their Lord on this account, but to see Yahweh's mercy upon all people. Verse 3, all the children of Israel. Verse 4, all people. Verse 5, all people. Verse 6, all Israel. It was in Gabbatha. It was upon the pavement that John shows us that all people who follow Christ can participate in the mercy of Yahweh by the sacrifice of the perfect offering. It was a place where the priests could not enter, a place paved with sapphire stones, a place where Pilate cried unto the Sanhedrin, Behold your king. As we continue in John chapter 19, we come to verse 13. When Pilate, therefore, heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat him in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha, and it was the preparation of the Passover. And about the sixth hour, he said unto the Jews, behold, your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king, but Caesar. Then delivered he the, him therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull. But in the Hebrew, Golgotha. It is a popular view that the significance of this place derives from David's victory over Goliath, who, after slaying the giant of Gath, takes his severed head, typifying, of course, Christ's victory over sin. Now, while this view may absolutely be true in the context and geography seem to fit, John's record wants us to peel another layer back, to dig a little bit deeper, almost as if to say, you've read the other three Gospels. Let's pull back one more layer. Both Matthew and Mark simply call it Golgotha, the place of the skull. Luke does not mention the word. It's only John who tells us that Golgotha is actually Hebrew terminology. The word Golgotha shares a root word with a very interesting location. 
An interesting location we looked at this morning, Gilgal. Gilgal. The place where all families of Israel made a covenant of service to their God. Now, why would Yahweh want this gospel written about the Jewish Sanhedrin to bring emphasis again to another Hebrew word? Especially if in the Hebrew, it almost means the same thing. Because it almost means the same thing. It shouldn't surprise us that the Hebrew word Golgotha occurs 12 times in the Old Testament. The number that represents the congregation of the children of Israel. All. It occurs twice as skull, referring to Abimelech and Jezebel. It occurs one time as head, referring to Dagon. It occurs seven times as poles, to take a pole. And it occurs twice as for every man, which the margin corrects to read, to take a pole. This is the point of the word Golgotha. It means everyone. Which is why it's used to take a pole, to count heads, to count everyone. Now, we're not going to look at every occurrence, but I'd like to take a look at a couple. Let's take a look at both times when it's, occurred, when it's translated as for every man. Exodus chapter 38 is, our, is the first occurrence we'll go to this evening. Come with me to Exodus 38 and at verse 26. Exodus 38, verse 26. And you'll notice that your margin does change it. A beka for a pole. But you could read it. A beka for Golgotha. That is half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary for everyone that went to be numbered from 20 years old and upward for 600,000 and 3,550 men. Now, this was in relation to the collection from all the males 20 years uh, and upward of the half of the shekel for the sanctuary. It was basically a tax paid in silver, a collection from every man. And it was used in all those seemingly uninteresting parts of the tabernacle, mainly those sockets and hooks. In Exodus 27, this is what the silver would eventually be used for. The sockets and the hooks. The sockets and the hooks. The sockets and the hooks. They were all attached, linked together, every one. So every man's contribution, according to Exodus 38, was linking him together to the next. As one unit, every man attached to another. Let's take a look at another time. Exodus 16 and a verse 16. Exodus 16, verse 16. This is the thing which Yahweh hath commanded. Gather it of every, gather it of Golgotha, of every man, of every skull, of every head. According to his eating, an omer for every man, according to the number of your persons, take ye every man from them which are in his tents. This was in relation to collecting manna, an act done by everyone. Christ teaches in none other than, of course, John's gospel, chapter 6, that Christ was the true bread from heaven, relating himself to that manna which giveth life to everyone. This was Christ 
the true bread. But you'll never guess in John's gospel who immediately has an issue with this statement. You're the true bread from heaven. John 6, 41, the Jews then murmured at him saying, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They would have none of that language. And we learn by experience, brothers, sisters, young people, every Sunday in the breaking of bread, by our participation, that we are all members, every one of that bread. Do you think it's an accident that Paul, right before talking about the emblems, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. This was how God wants us to see the drama of the cross in John's gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke combined to show us that two thieves were crucified with Christ, one on the left, one on the right. John reads, as we read this evening, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side one. And Jesus in the midst. Christ was in the midst. But not just of two thieves. He was in the midst of Golgotha. Of every man. Just like the manna for every man. Just like the half shekel was collected for every man. So Christ's triumph at Golgotha was for every man. Should be not a surprise to us that John provides the most detailed account of the plaque above Christ's head that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The King of the Jews. This sign was in all three languages. So all could read it. And brothers and sisters, all would. For they all passed by on the way to the city, as John says, for the feast of the Passover. Verse 20 says, this title then read, many of the Jews. Divine providence made sure that all who passed by could read it. And John's gospel shows us clearly just that. The Sanhedrin, well, they traveled to the cross to admire their three-year quest to kill their Messiah. And they notice above Christ's head a typo of sorts. And they run back to Pilate with their correction. And Pilate's words ring loud and true 2,000 years later, what I have written, I have written. Now, in most translations, which the King James, for some reason, does not include, is a small word in verse 19 that it's worth jotting in your margin. The word also. The verse reads in the ESV and many others, and Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. And Pilate also wrote an inscription. This may very well be implying that the Sanhedrin Jews had prepared their sign. But Pilate, almost as if he was expressing his sheer annoyance with this group, for the ridiculousness of this case, he also prepared a sign. And instead of a rebel leader 
hanging in their midst named Barabbas, these 70, whose sole purpose should have been to lead the nation to their king, stood as leaders of the greatest rebellion the earth has seen. But Christ died on Golgotha. Christ died Golgotha for every man. John sees Christ as the center, the representative of us all. And even though all do not accept him, as was in the case of one of the thieves, his sacrifice was made for the sins of the world. If they would but identify with him, carry their cross, and follow him. He was lifted up here in Golgotha. Brothers and sisters, young people, friends, how blessed we are that this table is for everyone. All of us have been invited to it if we but follow after him and his commands. We see manifested in its emblems the glory of Yahweh, and our response is, he is good. For his mercy endures forever. And we take this bread now, and we take this wine, and we see our own participation in it. Christ at our center, because he is the center of everyone. Even though all do not accept him, all can. So as we conclude our week together, we look to the beginner and the finisher of our faith. A man who, by willingly climbing on the cross, took on himself the power of every giant for all men. Let us now focus our thoughts on that death and that resurrection of the man who died for all, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Perhaps its author had the meaning of Golgotha the forefront of his mind when a letter was written to none other than the Hebrews. Quoting from none other than Psalm 8, the words and thoughts of David after slaying Goliath. Hebrews 2 verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Thank you for listening to the Good Christadelphian Talks podcast. We hope this talk helped you in your walk. If you would like to hear more, please subscribe for new episodes and leave a review in Apple Podcast or whichever service you are using to help more people find the show when they search for it. If you enjoyed this particular talk, please share it with someone who you think might enjoy it as well. For show notes on the talk you just listened to, visit our show page at anchor.fm gct or check the show notes section of your podcast player. Please share your thoughts on the talk from this week on our Facebook or Instagram pages where we are at Good Christadelphian Talks, on Twitter where we are at 
GCT underscore podcast, or leave a comment on our YouTube channel where these talks are posted as well. If you know of a great talk, we want to know about it too. Send a suggestion to our email at goodchristadelphiantalks at gmail.com or message us on any of our social media accounts. Thank you for listening. God bless and talk to you next week.